0: We tend to believe we're the smartest people in the room. It's our business and this and that. And come to learn that no matter how smart you are, we are smarter than me. The combination of your thoughts, my thoughts, and the rest of the team's thoughts are going to be better than what I can come up with on my own or enhance what I've already thought of or change it completely. There's going to be something different by getting other people's points of view.
1: Welcome in to another episode of The Professional Profiles Podcast that uncovers the time-tested wisdom for the next generation. Join me, a forward-thinking team, as I engage in insightful conversations with industry titans, revealing the invaluable ingredients that pave the way to achieving remarkable success. I'm thrilled to have a remarkable guest with us today someone whose insights and experiences have shaped the way we view leadership and relationship building. He's an entrepreneur, podcast host, and author of the acclaimed book, I Thought I Was a Leader. If you enjoy this interview, please consider reading his book, which I will link in the description. Please join me in welcoming the one and only Scott DeLong. So let's dive right in. So I'd love to work through your career trajectory first and then dive into each of the individual facets of your journey. So could you describe what that looked like?
0: Well, yeah, I really never thought much about career till after I got out of college. I I played baseball in college and that was fun. And when I got out, I went to work for a family friend in a fairly large company. And got a really low position within that and climbed through the ranks pretty fast. And ended up, by the time I was 25, I became the manager of people that had been managing there for 25 years. So that was a really difficult transition, right? Some of these people were 45, 50 years old. And here I was a 25-year-old kid, not long out of college and their boss. So that was my first take. I eventually went back and uh, decided that working for others wasn't my thing. It, it just wasn't. I, I had an entrepreneurial spirit. So I uh, started what what I'm going to call now my second company. I was doing some consulting and a friend of mine had a little small little business and had some opportunity in front of him. And so I did a consulting project for him. And at the end, he says, how do I make this grow? And I said, well, I don't think you can by yourself. I think you're going to need me to do that with you. So we became partners overnight. And and that was my first thing. And we were too young. too We were underfunded. It was complete bootstrap. So it was difficult. So that partnership, I learned a lot. And we did that for about eight years, sold that very profitably and tried to retire. But I was way too young uh, to retire. There was nobody to play with. The retired folks were 55, 60 years old, 70, 65 years old, and they didn't want to hang out with a, a 20 or 33 year old, run circles around him playing golf or tennis or any of those kind of sports. So I decided to to start another business, which was a a telecommunications company. We sold directly to hospitals and uh, started selling other services to hospitals. None of the services that we own, but we're repping and wholesaling services to hospitals. And that business grew and grew and grew. And it was the one that, I, I, my last one that I, I'm going to say retired from, but actually sold that off to my daughter, who was our, my chief, was really groomed to, to take over that business. So then that's when I started Lead to Goals. Lead to Goals was an organization that is meant to coach, teach leadership, communications, building trust, developing teams to other organizations. I'd been in an entrepreneurial mode most of my life and made plenty of mistakes along the way. And about the time I turned 50, I had some revelations that that, that changed the way I thought about the world. I grew up in a, a command and control structure, meaning when I was playing ball in particular, right? The coach is the coach and you just followed their lead and they told you exactly what to do and you did that. My first experience with this family friend was he was very similar very command and control kind of guy so all the people that i learned from were this command and control leadership style and it worked it was effective uh i guess it was efficient i'm not sure it's effective right the the downside of it i come to find out ends up being greater than the upside the upside is it works if you have a really highly intelligent leader and they know exactly what they want to do They tell you what to do, you do it, and it is efficient. It gets done. The work gets done. The downside is that we're not growing people. We're not making people better, right? So I had to learn everything on my own because I was being told what to do and I would go and execute as I was growing up, whether it's in baseball or my first few jobs, and then became that kind of leader in my first couple companies as well. I hate saying this because it, it sounds arrogant, but... We tend to believe we're the smartest people in the room. It's our business, and this and that, and come to learn that no matter how smart you are, we are smarter than me. The combination of your thoughts, my thoughts, and the rest of the team's thoughts are going to be better than what I can come up with on my own, or enhance what I've already thought of, or change it completely. There's going to be something different by getting other people's points of view. So, my my journey. Of entrepreneurship took me through these things where I was the boss. I was the guy. I was all of that. And it wasn't until late in my last job that I recognized and rec- realized the, the errors of those ways. For instance, I was grooming my daughter to take over my company. How is she going to take that over if she doesn't know how to think or how to think about this kind of stuff never been able to work towards that? So I had to change that philosophy completely and start being more more engaging, and frankly, listening a lot more than talking.
1: So you're you're saying that there are two types of leadership styles. There's one that's more authoritarian and one that's listening.
0: So leadership is what I studied in when I went back to school and got my doctorate in leadership studies. And there are several modes of leadership, right? They, they give them names. There's a transformational leader. There's the servant leader. There's the authentic leader. There's the command and control. There's a the charismatic leader. You can have all those types of leaders, right? And I think there's two styles. There is one where it is the former military style, which was the general Tells the colonel who tells the major who tells the captain and go down the list and it comes all from the top. And then there's a much more progressive style and I'm going to call it. It's a style, not a, it's not a leadership theory, but a progressive style that takes into account sharing your experiences, listening to others, collaborating with more people, not making all decisions from the top down and bringing people in. I will say the command and control style is much faster. I don't have to consult with anyone. I just make the decision and we move forward. The problem with that style is that we're, the company is only be as good as I can make it by myself. And I know that we are going to be better than me. That's the progressive style is to include more people and be much more collaborative.
1: So I'd love to go back into leadership a little bit later, but focus on your entrepreneurial journey right now. So you mentioned that there were some mistakes that you made along your journey. Could you dive into maybe one or two of those mistakes and what you might've done differently?
0: All right. Let me preface this a little bit by saying I've got a philosophy on failure. We all make mistakes. People make mistakes. That's just what happens with people, right? And it's only a failure if you did not learn from that mistake. If I use that mistake as a learning opportunity, I haven't done a failure and it's just a mistake. So the kind of mistakes that I made were, I'll I'll tell you the biggest one, was I thought from my point of view that, uh, let's say, Charlie, that you came into my office and you had a great idea. I would debate that idea, even if I thought you were right. I would say, yeah, but, or what about, And, and and I was really good at that, right? For me, it was a lot of fun. Here's what I was trying to do. What I was trying to do was challenge you a little bit to support your idea, maybe think a little bit differently about it, maybe really just hone in that it is the right thing to do. My intentions were good, the impact was not nearly as good. What happened was you would quit coming into my office because I would just continue to debate with you, right? I would say, yeah, but change this or think about that or How, what do you think? And I'm a supremely confident human, right? And not everyone that's working for you is gonna be that confident and they're just gonna finally say, enough of this, I don't need that, right? And they quit bringing me ideas. So that's probably one of the largest mistakes that I made. I'll tell you another one. I had my uh, children working for me They started working for me as soon as they could drive out collecting payphones and doing things like that and uh, repairing them. And I had three of my kids, my daughter and then two boys working for me. So the boys would give them some goal and they'd reach that goal and they'd say, Hey dad, got this done. And I would do this. I would say, Hey, that's great. Now let's go do this. So from my boy's point of view, what they learned is that no matter what they did, it wasn't good enough from their point of view. That is entirely true. For mine, that's not what I was trying to do. What I was trying to do is say, that's great. Now let's give you a new goal. What I should have done is said, that's great, and put a period at the end of that sentence. The next day or two days later, come back with a new set of goals for them. Let them feel good about the things that they accomplished. Because if you talk to, to those children right now, they would say, Nothing I ever did was good enough. And that's not true. It was. I was trying to get them to reach higher and continue to grow and do all that. Again, the difference between intention and impact were huge. So those were probably two of the biggest mistakes that I made. One, in dealing with my own children taught me that that's what I should be doing with everybody else. Give them a pat on the back when they've done what they're supposed to do. Let them feel good about that. There's time for new goals later. Do that later, but let them revel in their success a little bit.
1: For sure. Yeah. So this kind of goes with what you're just saying. You have the amazing quote. It doesn't matter what I say. What matters is what you understand. So could you go into that quote a little bit and talk about how that may apply to business as well or just life in general?
0: So I, yeah, I think I, okay and life in general. I like that because here's the thing. The, so I'm going to take a step back from that and say business and life in general are the same thing. The same techniques that we use in business are going to work at home as well. So let's take communications for instance. It doesn't matter how good a communicator I think I am. It's your interpretation of the message. It's what's going to happen. is what's going to be the reality of, of what just happened. I, I, been in a lot of meetings, conference rooms, right? So 10 people in a conference room and the boss is sitting up there and they say, okay, here's what we're going to go do. And everyone knows what we mean, right? And they all nod their head. Yep. We got it. We got our marching orders. And then next Friday, when we come back and there's six different interpretations of what was meant, everybody heard it from their own lens and from their own frame. So what I what I've learned to do is, is even though I think I'm a good communicator, I think I know what I'm saying, I believe my intention is to get this message out. The interpretation is going to be whatever it is from their point of view, what they've heard, how they heard it, what possibly even what mood they were in when they heard it, right? So they're going to interpret it based on whatever their feelings are. So one thing that I learned to do in these meetings is to never say, okay, everyone's on the same page, right? And they all nod their heads. Because no one's not going to nod their head to that question. They're all going to say, yeah, we got it. Because they did understand what they thought they heard. So now, rather than say, everyone, I won't say that to anybody, what I'll say is, okay, so based on that, what do you think your next steps are going to be? Then I can hear what their interpretation was. And if it's different than what I thought I was saying, so let's check that. Here's what I thought I was trying to say. What what was it that you heard? We can clarify that a little bit. Because again, the output, if, if I've given marching orders to this group of people, the output that's going to come back is going to be from their point of view, what they thought they were told to do, which very possibly could be different than what I thought I was telling them to do. So, yeah, that's what I mean by that. And and never, ask, so I, I never ask anybody, right? Because they always nod their head and say, yeah, I, I know what you mean. No, they know what they heard. <laughs> anyway, so that's what I mean by that.
1: This is probably a huge question and one that might not be possible to answer, but do you believe it's possible that a good leader can get a communal understanding where everyone understands that? Or do you think everyone's individual biases change the way they view a certain thing that the leader is saying.
0: I think it's imperative for a good leader to make sure that we have a communal view of what's been said. And here's the problem with that, is that might take some time. So let's go back to this conference room where there's 10 people and here I am barking out orders and doing talking about the new initiative and all that, and, and then going around the room and finding out from each of the people what it is that they think their next steps might be. And then you give me some impression and I said, that's not quite what I was thinking. Here's what I was thinking, what do you think? And going back and forth a little bit on that to get maybe a better point of view, right? Because we are smarter than me. So I'm gonna go around the room and check with each of them to find out if we're on the same page. So just giving marching orders, like here's our mission, boom. I wanna understand what people think that mission means to them. Here are our core values. What does that mean to each of these people in the room? not just my interpretation of that. And the more we talk about it, we can get to at least consensus. Now, consensus doesn't mean everybody agrees. Consensus really means everybody can support. There's a slight difference between those things. How do I get you to support something that you might not believe in 100%, right? But the rest of the group is feeling pretty good about this. And there's really a simple technique to do that. And that is to listen to you, to to hear you out. If you feel like you've been heard out, all your points have been made, people recognize what it is that you're talking about. You have a better chance of falling in line with the rest of them, even though you might have a slight disagreement on the exact meaning of what it is that we're doing, or the exact interpretation of of, uh, the marching orders. Getting consensus means that we can get everybody to support. And I believe it's incumbent upon a leader to get consensus. I would much rather have commitment from you than compliance from you. Compliance means you're going to do what I tell you to do. I don't agree, but I'm going to do it. You'll get the work done. Getting a commitment to that, you'll ensure the work's done to its best. And we get that by getting into this consensus mode with within the team.
1: So to the next generation, what would you say to them about leadership? And do you believe that it's going to be such a crucial skill to have in the future?
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be a little tougher to become the kind of leader just based on technology. So people are... Relying on technology these days, especially the younger generations, right? Hey, send me a Slack or text me, or email's probably even too old school for, for younger people anymore. But they are wanting these quick hits in the written language, right? So the problem with the written language is the interpretation of that isn't always as good. You can't hear my tone of voice, you can't hear my pitch. You can't see my eyes. You can't do all those things when I'm s- sending you a Slack message. And here's what happens with the written message is that people will almost always read that message with a negative slant. He must be mad. Wasn't mad. I was n- normal, right? So if you, if I'm sending a, an angry email, it's going to be really angry, right? If I'm going to send a happy email, they might not even see that I'm happy about it. Leadership is going to take a little bit of extra effort because of the use of technology is going to create some distance and some misunderstanding. So if you want to be a good leader, look somebody in the eyes once in a while. It's really make that human connection. Leadership is all about people. People are human beings. They're not machines. So is it important? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that the younger generation is going to have to adapt to. There's a lot of things that I think the older us older generation has to adapt to as well. And we can talk about that if you'd like. But that's one of the things that I think the younger generation is going to have to adapt to is the recognition that we're, business is all about people. So is life, right? Family relationships and friends and, and love interests and all that's about. It's, it's about people. It's people to people. And we do not make the kind of connections using our thumbs that we do use in our voices, our ears, and our eyes.
1: So as an entrepreneur and author, which we'll get to your book in a moment, what have you explored that makes organizations succeed and organizations fail? And Hmm. what qualities have you found that differentiate the two?
0: What makes organizations succeed, what makes organizations fail is the same answer to people. All right. So when they fail, it's because the people aren't aligned. So I have a a line that we use in our organization that says, before you start working on systems and your procedures and all the money that people spend on technology and all that, if you don't work on your people first, you're just wasting your time and money. So it's all about the people. So in the alignment of those people, getting the right people, doing the right jobs, and then the alignment on what the mission is going to be. And if you don't have that you will not have long-term success. You can have short-term success. Don't get me wrong. We can make this quarter and next quarter, we can make those work, especially with the old command and control style, because I'm going to give you your marching orders and you're going, to, you're going to make 30,000 widgets this month. And you're going to do it because that's what you're getting your bonus on and your paycheck on and all that kind of stuff. But if we're not aligned on what we are trying to do as an organization, all you're going to do is the bare minimum to keep your job. It's just the way it works. These are people that need to feel connected to the company, to their boss, to the work that they do, to the mission of, of that work, that people need to feel connected to get the most out of them. So the companies that succeed are succeeding because their people feel connected.
1: Do you think that a sort of universal value system is required, like everyone on board and understanding why they're doing what they're doing is one of the key determinants of a successful organization.
0: Absolutely. So I'm going to define culture within an organization in a couple different ways. There's one definition that says your culture is your vision, which is a long-term plan for the company and what it's going to look like. The mission, here's what we do and why we do it. And then the core values are as important as anything else. So you think there needs to be an alignment? Sure. Uh, As an example, One of my core values is trust. There has to be trust within the organization. With that comes honesty and and all those things, right? So if I went to a place that started working there and they said, I don't care what you have to do, get the sale. I wouldn't last there because they have these expectations that I will lie and cheat and steal to get this, if that's what's required to get the sale, as opposed to, I'm going to follow my truth. My if my core values align with the company, there's a chance for success. If they do not, there is no way I will work there. Not for very long anyway. I might cash a few checks because I need the money, but you're certainly not going to get a commitment from me. So yeah, it's absolutely essential that there is. And people sometimes take this too far into this the word cult is in culture. I'm not talking about creating a cult. I'm talking about hiring people that believe in these same values. And it's the values that I think are the most important. Our values must align or I'm not going to be happy. If I'm not happy, I'm not staying. You can't pay me enough to stay forever if I'm not happy in the job, right? So the the core values become first, then alignment of the mission, and then some blue sky thing on what the mission or what the vision looks like for the organs. Where are we going together? If those things are in alignment, we're in good shape. If they're not, there's going to be problems.
1: So let's transition to your book. I thought I was a leader. What does your book seek out to actually answer?
0: My book was written for a specific purpose. It was written for those like me, the generation that I'm growing in, white males in this 50 to 65-year-old range that are still in charge of the world, at least the business world as in the United States as we see it today, right? We still have the, the, what you're going to call power. We still hold the positions of power. That's changing, fortunately. But my book was written for that those people – those that look and acted like I acted to recognize that there's a better way. One of the things that I say in there is that we old school business guys complain a lot about the millennials and the Gen Zs. The complaints we make are, oh, they're lazy. They don't have a work ethic. They don't this, they don't that, they don't whatever. They, all, they want a trophy for everything. Those are the complaints that I hear from people, my generation talking about yours. And so, so I, I look at them and I say two things. I look at these leaders and I say two things. First of all, I said, we raised them. <laughs> They're a product of what we brought to the world. We want, we wanted to do better for our children than we did for ourselves. And that every parent does that. But we raised them to to think and act like this. And the second part is that this is our workforce, our customer, and our future customer. And that's who they are. It's not them that needs to change. It's us. That's who the book was written for, for those that recognize that if you want to succeed between now and the end of your career or life or whatever, we are going to have to adjust this old school, what I was taught playing ball or my first boss, this command and control kind of thing and who I was, frankly, and just say, just do it my way because you're not going to put up with it. You, your generation just not going to put up with that. The, the great resignation, everyone wants to blame the COVID virus on the great resignation, where the turnover was at 30%, 35%. It may have been an impetus and started that, but that's not what it was. What it was is that the young people aren't going to put up with our crap anymore. The demands, right? We want to. They want to work together. They want to believe in not just what they're doing, but who they're doing it with. And they're going to keep looking around until they find that. So that's who it was written for. I'm hoping that's the message that it gets across. What I found though, is that most of the people are reading it are the next layer down. They probably the Gen Xers that are vice presidents right now and trying to get into the C-suite and are reading it. And you know what they're telling me? They're saying, how come my boss isn't like you? Like open to this new idea. It's because what, and the reason is because, take that 65 year old CEO. What he's done has worked for him. Why would he change? He's only got a year or two left before he retires, right? They're they're probably not going to change. So even though I wrote the book for my people, my generation, C-level executives in this age bracket, what I found is it's the next layer lower that I was really speaking to because they can't act like how they were trained if they want to keep you.
1: So your book argues that for many leaders, the biggest challenges actually come through embracing the principles of humility, empathy, and vulnerability. How can one work on these three things?
0: I'll tell you why the challenges were there in the first place. The the challenges are there because we didn't grow up learning that. the, the, The people in my generation, we didn't learn those things. Men were supposed to be men and tough and pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you don't cry and you don't, all that kind of stuff. And damn, I just we weren't right. (laughs) We weren't right. Emotions are real. People talk about feelings, right? And I had one woman come into a, a company and she told her president, she goes, you brought a guy in here and he was talking about feelings. Wow. And then she said, thank you. Why? Feelings are real. They matter. They're not just, hey, ignore them. We're in business now. And it's just drive down and get to the bottom line. These are people we're dealing with, right? So the feelings matter. So that's why the transition needs to take place. We didn't learn it growing up. We weren't allowed to be vulnerable. We weren't allowed to be understand empathy. But those are the three, the principles that I believe were the key to my transition, and I believe the key to the transition to get a better understanding. So empathy doesn't mean sympathy. It doesn't mean you have to feel sorry for you. It means I understand you. Humility doesn't think doesn't mean to say, oh gosh, please don't give me any praise. I'm I'm not worthy. It doesn't mean that at all. Humility means that maybe there's another point of view in the room that I should listen to. Be humble enough to know that I don't have all the answers. And vulnerability, this was the big one, right? Being vulnerable. I have found that being vulnerable is the most attractive quality I can have. My looks went a long time ago, right? But I still get people coming to me because of this vulnerability thing. It draws people in when you're vulnerable. Now, I don't mean being a wishy-washy and wimpy. and all, I, I'm not meaning that at all, but just being real and being human. People get attracted to other human beings. And the more vulnerable I am, the more people will come towards me.
1: So do you think leadership is a skill that can be worked on and built up through hard work and dedication? Or do you think it's born with?
0: I think Absolutely. Are there some born leaders? Yeah, that's where my book says. I thought I was a leader because I was, I was a born leader. I Where I went, I became in charge of that place. Whether it was on a board of directors somewhere, or whether it was in an organization, or whether it was in the baseball field, no matter where I went, I became the leader. There's another line in the book that comes after that. I thought I was a leader. Turns out I was just an asshole. Right? Nobody wants to deal with that. That that command and control style. Yeah, like. The the vulnerable, Scott, is what draws people. The know-it-all boss pushes people away. They're only there for what I could do for them. A paycheck, whatever it's going to be, a raise, a bonus, or, or, or whatever. If I wasn't providing those things, they wouldn't be sticking around that guy. Yeah, I think it can be taught. Fortunately, I learned. Unfortunately, I think I learned too late. I didn't start getting this until I hit about 50, when I realized that what I was doing wasn't getting me where I wanted to be. And where I wanted to be was somewhere more than just a business titan or a a successful entrepreneur or whatever. I wanted to be a good person. And that encompasses work and home life both. And it's the same techniques. It's this listening to people, showing them that they matter, hearing what they have to say and who they are, right? And then really understanding where they're coming from and then not and then knowing that while my ideas might be good they're not the only ideas and there may be better ones out there or you can at least improve my ideas even if it is a good idea you're going to help it you're going to make something out of it and that's where this humility vulnerability and empathy come in i think those are the skills that you have to work on and they don't come easy i've i'm 63 now so i've been working on this for 13 years and i'm not quite there yet i'm working on it
1: so i Love to just wrap up our conversation talking about your work as a speaker and then tie that into sure. communication skills and how important that is as a leader. So yeah. how important are strong communication skills in our lives and how do we work on them?
0: I, I think communication is the most important thing and, and being better, being good at it or getting better at it is really a worthwhile venture. I can't get my message across to people unless I speak in a language that resonates with them. For instance, go back to the book. I wrote it for my generation, but it's a generation below me that it's resonating with. My generation didn't want to hear it. This worked for me, right? So I wasn't a good communicator to them. The people that I actually wrote this book for weren't the ones that was understanding the need for that. So I don't believe that I got that message across. And that's who I really wanted to influence. So if I want to really influence them, I had to speak in a way that they understood. And and while some did, not as many did as I'd like to. So I think it's important. Here's what I'm trying to accomplish, my my intention. The impact wasn't there. Now, the impact landed on another group, which I'm happy for and I'm grateful for. But the group that I was really trying to speak to, I didn't. So even being what I consider a good communicator, I didn't land because I was too, you need to do this. And the guys are saying, look at me. My job was better than your best job ever. Why do I need to change? So I I didn't resonate well enough within that group. So consider that a mistake, another mistake, not a failure yet, because remember, it's not a failure if I didn't learn, if I learned something. And here's what I learned, that I didn't use the right message to hit the audience that I was really trying to hit. So now I need to make an adjustment on that. So the next book is going to be a little bit different.
1: Mm -hmm. For sure. So what would be your one piece of advice that you would share with as many people as possible?
0: The best advice that I can give is that all human relationships are built on trust. Someone's not going to trust me if I don't trust them too. So the biggest piece of advice I can do, tell people is try to learn how to go through a, a method to get to trust. If you want to have relationships with people, positive relationships, I can have a bad relationship with you if I don't trust you. I can throw rocks at you. That's a relationship. But if I want to have a positive relationship with you, you need to trust me and I need to trust you. And the best way to get through the to, to create that trust is deeper levels of communication with these folks. Find out about them. Techniques on how to do that. Rather than walking in and telling everybody how awesome I am, why not go find out how awesome they are? You want to get better answers? Ask better questions. Guess what? They'll ask me some questions as well. Great. Then that's how we start this dialogue. But to walk into a room and just say, here I am, let's talk about me. That's not going to work. So go in and find out about other people. The real key... Besides trust, the deeper relationships that I've seen. And this is actually part of creating a high-functioning team as well. There's one other word that I use, and this is not a word that's used in business all that often, but there's another word that I use that I think is really important. Care. Show care for others. That's the way to build. A team, a business, a one-on-one relationship takes care.
1: All right. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate your interview and all your amazing advice.
0: Thank you, Charlie. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me on.
1: Thank you for listening. If you learned something, be sure to share this with a friend that could use it. My name is Charlie Hubbard, and this has been Professional Profiles.